0: Good morning, Fellowship Fayetteville. We all stand and worship with me. <laughs> i Ben, You guys can have a seat.
1: Well, good morning, everyone. I feel like we're doing okay. Um, I was about to have y'all scoot over, but I think that we're feeling okay this morning. My name is Andrea Barnett. I'm the production coordinator here. Normally, I'm the one talking in their ears, telling them, hey, tell them to scoot over. We don't have enough seats in here. So I'm really glad that you guys are here worshiping with us this morning. And you know what has been so incredible? I don't know if y'all have noticed, at this service, we've been filling up. And at the 10.30 service, we have been exploding. Like people on the walls. If you remember Fellowship Rogers days, you remember the 9.30 service. It was normal to be on the walls for that service. That's what's happening at the 10.30. And we are just praising God that we are filling up this room, right? Right? Can you imagine, like two years ago it was empty and this video here on the screen, Caleb got a drone shot um, of the parking lot. This was between the nine o'clock and 10.30 service last week. It is organized chaos is what it is. And you can see the cars going all the way to the highway in that direction, which is so wild. And so we are just celebrating what God is doing. And we also want to invite you on ways that we can make the process of coming into here a little bit easier. We have this really cool thing called Worship One, Serve One. The idea is that you worship for one service and then you serve for another service. And if you call this your church home, you're coming here regularly we invite you to be a part of worship one serve one um a few ways that we can help the 1030 service, and even this service as it's starting to fill up, be a little bit easier to get into, we need help with parking, we need help with uh, greeting, people who are at the doors greeting people as they're coming in. We also need help with ushering. About 20 ushers is what we're looking for to help seat people as fast as possible um, when the service starts, before we start filling up the walls. And so if you are interested, that QR code on the screen is gonna take you to our serve form, um, and we would love for you to get involved in that way. Okay, next thing. So I'm up here representing the worship arts team. That's a team I'm a part of here at the church. And we had a kickoff event called Creative Collective that we just did a couple weeks ago. And as we were planning this event, the idea was to get a whole bunch of creative people together in that go to church here, and we wanted to uh, just... Inspire each other and just be in the room together and get to know each other with whatever art that people do. So, when we started this event, we were like, Well, Lord, it'd be really cool if we had 20 people there. It'd be really cool. And then, somewhere along the line, it kind of morphed into, Okay, we really would like 50 people there. It'd be so cool if we had 50 people there. Okay, Lord, that'd be cool. But 20 is great, 50 is what we want. And we were just blown away when 80 people ended up coming to the event. And so if you are an artist, we're hoping to do this about once a quarter. If you're an artist, whatever you do, we want you to be there and just be inspired with each other. And so that QR code is gonna get you on our email list so that we know to get in touch with you. Um, Next thing, and this is probably my favorite announcement of the morning. We have new members here at Fellowship Fayetteville, which is so exciting. Their names are on the screen. If you are in this room, do you mind standing if your name's on the screen so we can celebrate you? Anyone? Yeah! <laughs> amazing! Oh, we love that you have called this your church home. We are excited to celebrate you and your family being here. Thank you so much for being here. Ryan, we have an amazing service coming up. You wanna share more about it?
0: on February 22nd. So he just p.m. said
1: Ash Wednesday, in case you are curious. It's on the screen, but <laughs> oh, I'm it. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Ash Wednesday. Can you hear me now? Sweet. Ash Wednesday, February 22nd at 7 p.m. I invite all of you yes. to be here. Ash Wednesday is the kickoff of the Lent season. It's a season for us uh, to, to pray and to fast and to, to prepare our hearts for the celebration that is to come on Easter. And so there's no childcare for this service, so just a heads up, um, but we would love for you to be there if you're able to make it again, February 22nd, that's at 7 p.m., that's gonna be here in this room. And lastly, I wanted to, uh, I wanted to pause and, and thank you all, if you've ever given to the Disaster Relief Fund here at Fellowship. We're able to utilize that money um, where it's really needed. And so um, this past week, there were two major earthquakes that happened in Turkey and in Syria and those people were um, devastated. Uh, I was looking at the news this morning and it looks like uh, 28,000 people have lost their lives due to um, those those earthquakes and it's probably still counting. And so we're able to utilize that money as a church and to partner with missionaries that we have in the area who are partnering with local churches uh, to provide the best care that we can. And so if you've given to that Thank you. If you would like to give to that, you can find it on the website. It's called the Disaster Relief Fund. Before we carry on, if you would, I'd like us to pause and just to pray um, for those countries. So Father, uh, in the the wake of the devastation that we see, um, God, we're perplexed. We don't understand um, the travesty that these people are going through, and it's halfway across the world, but yet, God, the individuals that are in the wake of this are souls that you created, they're bodies that you knit, that you formed, and so, Father, would you break our hearts? Would you move our spirits? Would you burden our hearts to pray for them, not just in this moment, but in the days and the weeks to come, and, and Father, I pray that you would, you would move your people God, my ultimate prayer is that your name would be glorified, that your spirit would move, and your name be proclaimed in the areas Turkey and in Syria. Um, So, Father, we we trust you. We trust that you are good in the midst of all of this still. We continue to praise your name. It's in your son's name. Amen. Church, if you would, let's, let's stand together. And as we just prayed corporately, let's confess our sins and our need for a savior corporately. Heavenly Father, have mercy on us. We have not loved you as you deserve. We have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. We have not obeyed you as we should. Lord, forgive us our sin. We are in need of a Savior. And for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, we believe that he is in fact our Savior and our only means for salvation, then we have hope. So church, Believe the good news. Jesus died for us. Jesus rose for us. Jesus intercedes for us. In him we are a new creation. In him we have forgiveness of sin. In him we have a savior. To God be the glory forever and ever. Amen. You can can move mountains. You can close the mouths of lions. And God, you are in control of our destinies. And we trust you because we believe that you're sovereign and we believe that you are good. Father, we love you. It's in your son's name. Amen. Church, you can be seated.
2: Have you ever been in an impossible situation? Have you ever been put in a situation where there's just no way you could make it work. For instance, in college, did you ever have two finals scheduled at the same time and neither professor wanted to flex? Oh, I get a knot in my stomach thinking about it now. I've been out of college 30 years and I still have stress dreams. Or how about this one? Every parent can probably relate to this. You have two kids who both have to be at two different places at the exact same time. That's an impossible situation. Or maybe in the workplace, your team leader or your boss tells you, you need to get this project done, but don't pay any overtime. What can you do? It's an impossible situation. What we're going to see today in Daniel chapter 2 is that Daniel is in an impossible situation. The king tells Daniel, I want you to tell me, what I dreamed, and what my dream means, and if you can't, you're gonna be executed. It looks like Daniel and his friend's career in Babylon may be over before it even starts. So I want to get you to turn with me there if you would. Daniel chapter 2, that's where we're going to start. We're going to look at some other passages in the book this morning as well. My name's Michael. I get to serve on the community team here at Fellowship Fayetteville. And this is the second week of our series in the book of Daniel. My community team teammate, Garland, kicked us off last week with an overview of the book and the background. And he also showed us Daniel chapter 1. And What Garland showed us was that Daniel begins in the book, the book of Daniel begins in 605 BC. That's when the first wave of exiles, conquered people, left Israel and went into the empire of Babylon. And so last week we met Daniel and his three friends. We know them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That was their their Babylonian names. And we saw how they integrated into life in exile. And Garland talked to us about the way of the exile. We saw that those men were being trained to serve in the Babylonian government. And this morning, we're going to press into the book a little bit more. We're going to move into chapter two. And here's what we're going to see as we work our way through this morning. We're going to start off with a dream of a statue in chapter two. Then we're going to jump over to chapter seven and look at a vision of beasts. And then we're going to end by looking at a figure that's revealed to Daniel, one like a son of man. And so as we begin in Daniel chapter 2 and verse 1, we have a king that can't sleep. You might remember from our study in Esther, King Xerxes had a sleepless night that was pivotal to the plot of that book. This time, it's King Nebuchadnezzar. And he can't sleep because he's had a disturbing dream And so in the verses that follow, he calls in all of his wise men, his sorcerers, his magicians, his enchanters, and he says to them, interpret my dream. And they say, oh, yeah, for sure. We're all over it. Tell us your dream. And I think Nebuchadnezzar doesn't really trust these guys. I think he doesn't really believe that they have supernatural insight because he says, no, no, you tell me my dream. You tell me my dream and tell me what it means. And so they respond. The thing the king asks is difficult and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with the flesh. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. This is Daniel's impossible situation. So in verse 13, the decree goes out and the wise men are about to be killed and they come and find Daniel and his companions. And Daniel says, Hang on, hang on. Make me an appointment to see the king. I'll tell him about his dream. Now, at this point, Daniel has nothing. This is completely an act of faith. Nothing's been revealed to Daniel yet. So Daniel goes to his three friends and he says, We got to pray. He says, Pray that God will have mercy in this situation. And so they all start praying, and sure enough, God responds, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. So Daniel goes into the king, and Nebuchadnezzar says, So I hear you're the guy who can explain to me my dream. I want us to look at Daniel's reply and remember what we learned last week about the way of the exile. Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, or magicians, or astrologers can show the king the mystery that the king has asked. Notice Daniel says, no, what you've asked for really is impossible. In fact, he agrees with the pagan wise men. He says, this can't be done. But, verse 28 begins with the word, but, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will occur in the latter days. Daniel says, it's not me. But the God I serve, the God in heaven, he's revealed what will be in the latter days. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar, God is revealing to you the future. And that's a key thought for us as we work through what happens in the dream. Everything described here, Daniel's telling what's going to happen. So here's the dream Daniel says, You dreamed of an image, we would say a statue. And Daniel says, it's exceedingly bright and frightening. Now you know at this point, Nebuchadnezzar has to be freaking out, right? Can you imagine if you had a dream? You know those crazy dreams where you wake up and you're like, what was that? And you can't stop thinking about it. Imagine if you went to work and you're getting your coffee in the break room and you said, Man, I had a crazy dream last night. And your coworker said, Oh yeah, was it this? And described your dream to you? Be like, what in the world? That's what Nebuchadnezzar is experiencing. Here's Daniel's description. It begins in verse 32. The head of the image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And Daniel says, as you looked, Nebuchadnezzar, as you looked, a stone was cut by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay, and it broke them into pieces. Do You have a, a picture of this in your head? This big statue made of all these precious metals, the sun glinting off of it. As we look at the statue, notice the weight of the element decreases as we go down. Gold heavier than silver. Silver's heavier than bronze. It's top heavy. And as we work our way down, the preciousness of the metals decrease. Gold more precious than silver silver than bronze, but as the weight and the preciousness goes down, the strength goes up, ending with iron, the strongest of all these metals. And then the feet, maybe you've heard the saying, the feet of of clay. It's an expression, it's an idiom in the English language, and it means something that looks really good, but has a fatal flaw that could be its undoing. That saying comes from this passage. The feet of the statue are made with iron, but it's mixed with clay. It's brittle, and when the stone, not cut by human hand, strikes it, it brings the whole thing down. Look at verse 35. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. At the threshing floor, the wheat was beaten out of the chaff. There's that thin, it's like a membrane, like a coating around the head of the grain. And at the threshing floor, that would be beaten off and it would just blow away. Daniel says that's what happened to all the parts of the statue. When the stone struck it, the whole thing crumbled and just blew away. And where the statue had been, that stone becomes a mountain that fills the whole earth. That's the dream. That's a lot. No wonder Nebuchadnezzar couldn't sleep. It's a crazy dream. But how does it tell the future? How does this dream tell what's going to happen? Well, God didn't just show Daniel the dream. He gave him the interpretation. And in verses 36 through 45, he explains all the parts of the statue. He starts off with the head of gold. He says, that's you, Nebuchadnezzar. And I know Nebuchadnezzar was like, yeah, I'm the gold head, that's right. Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, that's the head of gold. And then the other parts of the statue are succeeding kingdoms that would come after Babylon. Now, remember, We have the advantage of looking back through history. For us, it's obvious what came after Babylon, and it's obvious how they're represented in the statue. But all of this was told before it happened. We can look back at our history books and see that after Babylon came the Medo-Persian Empire. It was larger than Babylon, just as the chest and arms is larger than the head. But it also wasn't as tightly controlled And it really didn't have the splendor of the Babylonians, thus the less valuable metal of silver. After the Medo-Persians came the Greek empire of Alexander the Great. You probably remember him from Western Civ. He's the, the belly, the torso, and the thighs that are made of bronze. And after Alexander the Great died, his kingdom split into east and west, represented by the two thighs. And then came the Roman Empire The iron, the hardest of all the metals. Rome was the largest and most crushing empire the world had ever seen. It stretched from the British Isles all the way to India and encompassed virtually everything in between. One biblical commentator said, the legs of iron stood astride the ancient world. And so that leaves the feet. The iron mixed with clay And the fact is, scholars don't all agree on what they represent. But I think there are some clues in the text that point to the fact that these are kingdoms yet to come. Another Gentile kingdom, probably in the same area that Rome once ruled, but formed by a a mixed group of people. Daniel says in verse 43, they're mixed, but they won't hold together. And the main reason, I think, that the, the feet represent kingdoms still to come is what we see with the stone. The stone, of course, represents the kingdom of God. Look at verse 44. He says, and in the days of those kings, referring to the kings of the feet of iron and clay, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all the kingdoms and bring them to an end and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand and that it broke in pieces, the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. To me, that does not sound like what happened at Christ's first coming. The Roman Empire continued to stand for 400 years after Jesus lived died, was resurrected, and ascended back to heaven. So in my view, the stone that shatters the Gentile rule and fills the whole earth is the second coming of Christ. And so this statue, this dream, is a prophecy that spans from 600 BC all the way to the second coming of Christ. And it's remarkable in its specificity and its accuracy. And Nebuchadnezzar recognizes the significance of what he's just been told. In verse 47, it says the king answered and told Daniel, truly, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon. Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar elevates Daniel. He's now the leader of all the wise men. And we see in the subsequent verses, Daniel brings his three friends who prayed with him that night along, and they get high offices as well. Now, we don't have time to turn and read it this morning, but I wanna give you a cross-reference just to jot down. I bet many of you are already thinking of it. It's Genesis 41. Write that in the margin next to Daniel 2, or write it in your study guide. Genesis 41 is the story of Joseph. And God gives Joseph the ability to interpret dreams. And he becomes second in command to Pharaoh in Egypt, just as Daniel was elevated here in Babylon. And so I want us to just pause and make a couple of just quick applications from Daniel chapter 2. The first is that Daniel really and truly is in an impossible situation. Impossible except that God intervened, and the same is true for us. Garland talked about the way, the way of the exile. Garland did a great job last week showing us how we, as followers of Jesus, have a lot in common with these exiles. We live in a culture that doesn't believe what we believe, doesn't value what we value. And if God calls you or me to do something that, seems impossible. He'll give us what we need to make it through. Do You remember what Jesus said in Luke 12? He said, if you're brought before the authorities, don't worry about what you'll say. The Holy Spirit will give you the words. See, just like Daniel, if God calls us to do something, even something that looks impossible, he'll give us what we need to accomplish it. But the bigger application of Daniel chapter two, and this is the application that's gonna carry us into Daniel seven, is that God is sovereign over history. God raises up kingdoms, and God can blow them away like chaff at the threshing floor. Only God knows what's going to happen because ultimately, he's in control. And y'all, that should give us a lot of confidence. When things seem like they're going the wrong direction, we should be the first to say, ultimately, God's in control. And so rather than wringing our hands when an election doesn't go the way we want or a decision's made that we don't agree with, we should be on our knees in prayer for the people in power and reminding each other that ultimately, God's in control of all of it. That was true in Nebuchadnezzar's day, and it's true in our day. And just to make sure we got the message, the Holy Spirit inspired Daniel to record this twice. Now remember the chiastic structure, the chiasm that is Daniel two through seven, where each part is reflected in a parallel part that comes later all pointing to the middle, the key piece of the book. Daniel 2 has a counterpart, a mirror section, and it's Daniel 7. And interestingly, Daniel's written in two languages. Chapter 1's in Hebrew, the language of Israel. Daniel 2 begins a section that's in Aramaic, the common language of the exile people. And it goes all the way through 7. 7. Then in 8, it switches back to Hebrew, the language of Israel. And so 2 and 7 in Daniel are critical to the structure of the book. And interestingly, they both describe the kingdoms that will follow Babylon. And they both describe how the kingdom of God will triumph. But there are some key differences. In Daniel 2, the vision is given to this pagan king, Nebuchadnezzar. And he needs Daniel to interpret it for him. And as we've been discussing, it's the dream of the statue made of different metals. In Daniel 7, which happens exactly 50 years later in 552 BC, Daniel is the one who has the vision. And his interpreter is not a person. It's an angel. But Daniel's vision is not of a statue. It's a beast's. And so this morning, we're going to go for it. (laughs) We're going to do it. I was going to say we're going to dip our toe, but the truth is we're just going to jump into the apocalyptic section of Daniel. Remember Daniel 1 through 6, the narrative section. Some commentators call it the court tales. It has a plot. It has characters. It reads a lot like Esther, but beginning in Daniel 7, we're in the apocalypse section. Apocalypse just means revelation, revelation. Or, or, I forgot my other word, unveiling. There it is. Thank you, Holy Spirit. And so, we don't have any more narrative. We don't have any more plot. Instead, we have a series of visions, heavenly visions that represent earthly things. Now, this is a good time for me to give us a little word of caution. Not everyone agrees on how to interpret this. Now, of course, I've been studying this, and so what I'm going to share with you this morning is what I think. But some of you may not agree with what I say about this. Or you may be reading a commentary that says something different, or you might even have a study Bible that has notes that lead to a different interpretation. And here's what I want you to hear. Bible-believing... Jesus following spirit-indwelled believers can read the same text and arrive at different conclusions. And that's okay. We all need to bring a little humility to these conversations. So be nice to each other. Be nice to each other in your community group if you disagree. Be nice when you email me my email, by the way, g a autry at fellowshipnwa.org. <laughs> Let's be nice. Deal? You with me? Okay, fellowship, here we go. Daniel chapter seven, beginning in verse one. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared. All right, here we go. I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. Now, remember, we had a statue with four major parts, different metals. Now we have four winds stirring up the ocean, and out of the ocean, one after another, come four beasts. And Daniel's going to spend the next few verses describing them. Let's just kind of summarize that together. The first beast is a lion with eagle's wings. Archaeology will tell us that this was the symbol of Babylon. We found it in ancient Babylonian carvings. So the lion with wings is clearly Babylon. And in Daniel's vision, the lion's wings are plucked. And then the lion stands up like a man Spoiler alert, we're gonna see all that be fulfilled in Daniel chapter four with Nebuchadnezzar. Then the next beast is a bear. And this bear's got some interesting characteristics. He's a lopsided bear. He's lopsided a lot like the Medo-Persian Empire. See, the Medo-Persian Empire was a little bit of Medo, a whole lot of Persian. It was uneven. And the bear's got three bones in its mouth. The Medo-Persian Empire came to power by conquering Lydia, Egypt, and Babylon, three empires. Then we come to the third beast, a leopard with four wings on its back and four heads. You thought the dream of the statue was crazy. The leopard is not as strong as a bear. It's not as ferocious as a lion, but you know what a leopard is? Fast. And the only thing faster than a leopard is a leopard with four sets of wings. I've always said that. (laughs) You know what we think of when we think of Alexander the Great? Speed. His Greek army conquered the ancient world with a speed that had never been seen before. And I mentioned earlier, after he died, his his, uh, empire was split into two, the two bronze thighs. But it was split into the east and west, but there are actually four sections with four different generals who ruled over it, hence the four heads of the leopard. Remember, this is all given before any of this takes place. It's remarkable. And then comes the fourth beast, and you see on our chart, it's just called the dreadful beast because Daniel doesn't compare it to any animal that we're familiar with. He says things like it's ferocious, it's terrifying, it has iron teeth. It devours everything, and what it doesn't devour, it stamps on. This beast is Rome, the most terrible empire yet. It devoured much of the ancient world, and what it didn't take over, it destroyed. Even to this very day, historians say that Rome is the greatest empire the world's ever seen in terms of size, scope, and control. If you don't think the Roman Empire was a big deal, let me tell you some things we still have today that we got from Rome. Roads. Y'all like having roads? They didn't invent roads, but they pretty much perfected them. There wasn't a single road in the British Isles before the Roman Empire came. Last year, when Lee and I got to go to Israel, we drove on roads that are modern highways that are built where Roman roads once existed. You're not impressed by roads? How about central heat? Did you like that when it was 20 degrees last week? The Romans invented that. They invented a system of moving warm air through ducts in the floor that's similar to what we still use today. And the last one I know all of you appreciate, flush toilets. You can go today to these bathhouses that the Romans built and see how they had had modern systems of sanitation and waste removal in place. Rome was great and terrible. And it was unlike anything the world's seen before or since. But there's something else on this fourth beast that makes the vision even more unique. Look at the second part of verse 7. Daniel says, It was different from all the beasts that were before it. It had ten horns. And Daniel pauses to think about the horns. I considered the horns. And behold, it means look, look at this. There came up among them another horn. A little one before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, look, in this horn were eyes, like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. Welcome to apocalyptic literature. Very strange imagery, heavenly imagery of actual earthly things. Pictures of things to come. These ten horns and then the little horn that speak great things. We don't have an obvious analog in history. There's not something we can point to like we could on the beast that came before, which leads me to believe that the ten horns and the little horn, like the ten toes of the statue, are still to come. And just look at how things line up between Daniel 2 and Daniel 7. The four sections of the statue that that line up so perfectly with what world history tells us about the kingdoms, each reflected so accurately in these beasts. And then, of course, we just talked about the feet and the horns and how they're analogous. I think the Lord revealed this vision to Daniel and had him record it 2,500 years ago so that we could see this contrast between the beasts and the statue. I think what God is showing us is that, yes, He is sovereign over history. But He's also showing us that what we as humans, what world leaders, what sinful mankind views as strong and beautiful, God views as beastly. What people look at in amazement, human power, military might, conquest, economic strength, technical achievements, all the things that those Gentile kingdoms brought and continue to bring today, God views for what they really are. Wild beasts, terrors that kill and destroy and devour everything in their path. And just as that statue was struck by the stone and the kingdoms blew away like chaff, these beasts are going to meet their end as well. But before we get to that, the scene in Daniel 7 suddenly shifts. All of this with the beasts is taking place on the earth, right? We got the winds. We got the ocean. Then the scene shifts to heaven. Look at verse 9. It says, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. Look at this imagery. His clothing was white as snow. The hair of his head was like pure wool. The throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him. Ten thousand times, ten thousand stood before him. The court set in judgment. The books were opened. The Ancient of Days. It's God the Father seated on his throne. If you have time, you could take a deep dive on this imagery. And you know what? You're going to find it in Isaiah. You're going to find it in Ezekiel. You're going to find it in Psalms. And in the New Testament, you're going to find it in Revelation. In fact, heavenly thrones are mentioned 40 times in Revelation. What a scene. God seated on his throne, innumerable saints and angels surrounding him in worship. And the books are open. and court's in session. Judgment's at hand. But then in verse 11, the scene suddenly shifts back to earth. Daniel looks back to the earth because guess what? The little horn is running its mouth. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed. Its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their domination was taken away, but their lives were prolonged. For a season and a time, there's a lot in there. But the Gentile kingdoms continue for a time. The fourth beast is suddenly destroyed. You can jot down in your margin Revelation 19, 19 and 20. This is a future event where Gentile rule, earthly kingdoms are suddenly and forcefully ended. You might say they're blown away like chaff. Alright, y'all. I am so excited to look at this next verse with y'all. <laughs> I've been looking forward to this moment since Clark assigned me this passage last year. Daniel 7:13 through 14. Put a star by it in your Bible, put a box around it, get it tattooed. No, don't do that. Let's look at it. I saw in the night visions. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, all nations, languages should serve him. His dominion was an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now, remember, this is written in 552 B.C. Daniel has a vision of the ancient of days, God the Father, and presented to him is one like a son of man. In other words, a person in the midst of all this imagery of beasts and the sea and iron teeth and horns and a horn with eyes and a mouth comes a man. This is no ordinary man because the creator God of the universe who sits on a throne of judgment surrounded by thousands upon thousands gives to this one, like the son of man, a kingdom. Not a kingdom like the statues. Not a kingdom like the beasts. They destroy and trample. This kingdom unites all people All nations, all languages, and it's a kingdom that will never be destroyed. This has to be the Messiah. This is the one chosen by God. Messiah means anointed one from the very beginning. This has to be the one who would crush the serpent's head in Genesis 2. This has to be the one who would be greater than Moses in Deuteronomy 18. This has to be the one who would sit on David's throne forever in 2 Samuel 7. This is the one, like a son of man, given a kingdom in Daniel 7. And then five and a half centuries later comes Jesus. What's Jesus' favorite title for himself? Son of man. He calls himself that 78 times in the Gospels. And I think every time he called himself Son of Man, he was pointing, pointing to Daniel 7. He was saying, I'm the one you've been waiting for. And look at what we see in Daniel 7. We see clouds and power and glory. Look what Jesus said in Luke 21. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. See, Jesus came once in humility to give his life as a perfect sacrifice, to be resurrected, finishing the victory over sin and death, to ascend and sit at the right hand of the Father, interceding on our behalf where he remains to this day. But one day, one day he'll return, not in humility, but in power, and glory. And this time, the Son of Man will establish his kingdom on the earth and the Gentile kingdoms will be blown away like chaff. In the rest of Daniel 7, we see the little horn continues to run his mouth. He makes war against God's people. I believe he's the Antichrist that we're told will hold sway over the earth in the end times, but he'll be defeated by the greatest kingdom the kingdom of God, the kingdom given to the Son of Man, to Jesus, to prevail forever. And so with this sweeping prophecy that looks at ancient empires, at Gentile kingdoms, and to the future millennial kingdom, we see that God is sovereign over history. God is in control of all these events. He already knows what's going to happen. But we also see In Daniel 7, that the Son of Man, Jesus is the centerpiece of that history. It's the Son of Man who split time. We measure time by everything that came before him and everything that's come since. And now we live in the in-between time, the time between his two comings, because he is coming again. And when he comes again, he will extend his gracious reign and rule to the whole earth. What we're experiencing now in our hearts and our lives as Jesus followers will be extended on the earth like a stone that becomes a mountain that fills the whole earth, a kingdom that has an everlasting dominion. But it's our privilege to worship Him now, to give Him the honor and glory that's due to Him now. Yes, we look for the not yet, we wait for the day that his kingdom will be revealed in his fullness. But we don't have to wait until his kingdom comes. Because those of us who are followers of Jesus, which he invites everyone here to become. He's revealed it to us now. And so I want to invite all of you to stand with me, and I want to give us a chance to respond to the son of man, the centerpiece of history. Let's worship our King, Jesus Christ.
3: Should nothing of our efforts stand, no legacy, sir.
0: God, you're worthy of more. So, Father, we we get the privilege and the honor as Jesus followers to proclaim your greatness, God, because it brings us great joy. And we can sing that with confidence, knowing that Jesus Christ has risen and has given us hope and salvation, assurance and salvation. So, Father, for that, we love you. It's in your son's name, amen. Press on, press on, we're safe in His arms, when troubles and trials come our
3: way, and see peace shows.
0: over each other this morning trip available through the doors on your right. If you want to pray with someone, communion's also available. Church, we love you. Have a great week of worship. See you next week.